and lift the bandstand. CJSW 90.9 FM. Back to the station. When it's rainy outside, cuddle up on the couch. Tune in to CGSW 90.9 FM, broadcasting from Calgary on Treaty 7 land. Bringing you the best of contemporary classical and hits from centuries before. CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary and broadcasting on Treaty 7 lands. You are tuned into a new episode of Writer's Block on CJSW. CJSW's Writer's Block broadcasts out of the University of Calgary campus radio station at CJSW 90.9 FM, located on Treaty 7 territory. Writer's Block airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. If you ever miss our show live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com slash writers dash block. This episode of Writer's Block is brought to you by a student-driven collective. We'll be featuring inspiring interviews, poetry and fiction readings, and creative segments. Today's episode features interviews with Yalda Kazemi and Marcello DeCintio, a fiction reading from Ore Aroo Busuye, and an exclusive craft talk between University of Calgary's Crystal Smith and Melissa Spore-Weiss. Let's get started. We would like to provide a quick content warning for our listeners. This month's episode of Writer's Block contains strong language, adult themes, as well as mention of postpartum depression and mental illness. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Jenny Kwong. Today I'm speaking with Yelda Kazemi, author of the new book, Unapologetic Truths, The Realities of Postpartum We Don't Talk About, which launched June 1st. Kazemi is an author, mom, mental health advocate, stylist, and entrepreneur who has written a book about her experience with postpartum with the hopes that it helped other moms with similar situations. Here is my conversation with Yalda Kazemi. First of all, introduce yourself and tell me a bit about your background. Okay, so my name is Yalda Kazemi and I'm the founder of the company Stylist Theme. I uh, refer to myself as a style and wellness consultant. So what I do is I provide consultations and seminars education on merging style and mental health together. And I also recently launched a book called Unapologetic Truths, The Realities of Postpartum We Don't Talk About, which is basically a um, memoir and part self-help guide on how to navigate through um, mental illness with regards to postpartum, but it can also pertain to anxiety and depression as well. And uh, also a guide for support people in knowing how to help individuals in uh, experiencing those ailments. Okay. And what prompted you to write this book? Well, I became very sick with postpartum mental illness after the birth of my son in 2013. So I got postpartum depression, anxiety, as well as psychosis, um, leading to a very severe case where I almost took my son's life. So I asked to be hospitalized and it was a very long two and a half year journey to be fully recovered again. And after that, I just realized that there's a lot of stigma around postpartum mental illness. There's a lot of lack of awareness about it. And so I wanted to write a book to help others in their journey in order to help people understand how to deal with these ailments themselves, but also how their support people can help them in a more beneficial way. 
And so at what point did you realize you needed help with your mental illness? Um, it was at about one and a half months after giving birth. I was feeling really um, sad and down and crying and just not doing well. And at the six-week maternity checkup, it's actually my sister that forced me to tell the doctor um, that I wasn't feeling well. And they diagnosed me there with postpartum mental um, illness in terms of postpartum depression. And then after that, it was just a long series of the anxiety developed. And then as um, kind of trying to get better and things weren't working, um, more of the delusions and psychosis symptoms started to kick in. So the height of it was at about almost six months when I almost harmed my son that I realized I'm just not getting better and needed um, more intense help. So I asked to be hospitalized. What was the support system that you received when you were in hospital in terms of the professional care that you received? Yeah, so prior to that, I was seeing a psychiatrist that specializes in postpartum and perinatal mental health at the Women's Mental Health Clinic in Foothills. Um, But I had gotten to the point where I was getting really severe. So when I went to the hospital, I was under the care 24 hours of um, psychiatrists that were on the unit there, as well as my medication was very heavily um, adjusted. And part of that requires you to be, um, I guess, in a hospital doing it that quickly. But uh, it was just around the clock care I was able to be seen by a psychiatrist every day and monitored in terms of medication until things kind of subsided enough that it was safe to release me from the hospital. What about the care and support that you received from family members and friends? How did that help you? Yeah, so I was very lucky. I had I had some really supportive family um, and some very supportive friends who, who were there. Um, they were an integral part in helping me get better, especially my husband, my mom, and my sisters were really there and a few really close friends, which I discuss in the book. Um, and I honestly don't think I'd be here if it were not for them, their support to constantly help me through the process, constantly reassure me that, you know, they're not going to leave me alone, that I can do this, that they're there for me. That reassurance was really integral in helping me have the strength to keep going and keep fighting to get better. And for uh, every person who goes through a mental health issue, the recovery process can differ from uh, person to person. And so what did your recovery process look like? Yeah, so um, it is a slower uh, process with recovery. And so um, it was about two and a half years that passed where I can say I was completely uh, back to being myself. And the recovery, I don't think, I mean, it's not very common for people to have postpartum mental illness to the severity and duration that I did. And a lot of it had to do with, there's a lot of factors that, that kind of played into it. So there was a lot of external pressures that I think really aided in exacerbating my symptoms and making them worse. There's a lot of um, things in terms of like some of the medication just didn't work with for me. So it was a slow guess and check game on which one would be the right combination to find. There was some negligence on my part, which was when I felt like I was making a little progress, I I didn't want to be labeled as someone having a mental illness because I don't know why I always feared that stigma. And that played a part in me hindering my own recovery because I messed around with not taking my medication as often as I should or the way I should, thinking that I'm not strong enough if I have to take this medication, I can do it on my own. And, and that was just 
you know, stuff that I needed to go through to learn that that's actually not true. Having the mental illness label doesn't matter. It's more important to focus on getting better, getting the help. There's nothing wrong with having a mental illness label. None of us choose to um, experience it, right? It's just something that happens. And we, instead of focusing on why we became ill, we have to focus on how to get better. And so once I did that, I started to get better because I stopped having that pressure on myself. I stopped messing around with any of my own treatment methods and, you know, medications and things like that. So it took me two and a half years in total. It shouldn't have taken that long, but that that was partial, just my own kind of negligence there in, in messing around with it. How has your experience with postpartum influenced the relationship you have with your son as he grows older? Yeah, I, I honestly look at it as a blessing in disguise. I mean, I, I've always known I love him, but I think it's made my love that I feel towards him even even stronger because I had to fight to feel that love. I had to fight to be able to even experience it because at the onset, it wasn't like that. I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel the connection to him. And so for me, it's like a celebration that I get to even have that love with him. And I think it's made my bond even stronger with him. Um, And I'm not alluding to the fact that everybody has to experience postpartum mental illness to love their child. Not at all. But in my case, I think instead of looking at it as a negative, it strengthened my bond with him. And I've also explained to him that I got sick because I wasn't about to put out a book without having him know this is what happened to mommy. And I I never want it explained in the wrong way to him. So I explained to him that I got sick after and that it's nobody's fault. It's just kind of, you know, like a colder flu that happens. You get it. This is the same thing. And that my brain wasn't doing very well and that I just needed some help and being able to feel better. And it's, it's his love and his compassion and his smiles that helped me get through it and helped me get better. And that's the way he understands it. What led you to want to talk about your story publicly in this book format? Yeah. So um, I've spoken about it publicly before, but just to put it out in a book because I wanted to help others because the experience can be a very judgmental and isolating experience. You can get either people who are very supportive, who are there to help. Like in my case, I had some very supportive people, but then I had some very non-supportive and judgmental individuals who placed a lot of criticism on me. And that really made my symptoms worse. And so I wanted to stop another woman, another mother, another family from having to endure that. I wanted to give tips on this is what you can do from my experience on getting better. This is what support people can do or not do in order to help people around them. Because sometimes even with the judgments and criticism, I'm not saying it's necessarily, you know, meant to be malicious, but it comes across as that way and it it hinders the person's uh, progress. And we don't want to do that. And I think the more we very openly talk about what mental illness looks like, or what in my case, postpartum mental illness looks like, the more people can be educated and have awareness. And that's why I made it very raw and authentic. And it's, you know, some people might think that it's, it should have been more sugar coated, but for me, I I don't believe in that because if I sugar coated and I don't tell the absolute truth of what it is like, people will never fully understand the severity of it and why awareness and help and resources are needed. So it was, you know, a two-part to educate others, but to also help people that are going through it so that they maybe have an easier time than the difficulty that I went through. If I can share my learnings in any way and help someone else, that's that makes me getting sick worth it. And I guess talk about the business you have right now, uh, helping uh, with mental illness. 
Yeah. So, um, I mean, uh, under my company, I do multiple things. One of them is um, I've recently started offering mental health coaching because I've obviously experienced this ailment firsthand. I wrote a book on it and the book's been reviewed by multiple doctors as well. Um, And so I thought who better than to help coach someone through this than someone who actually has gone through it in such detail and knows. Um, So I offer mental health coaching for anyone who may want family or one-on-one support. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a doctor or a psychologist or a psychiatrist of any sort. So it's not medical, um, but it's more so one-on-one individual coaching. And um, I do have a degree in psychology, but not at the level to be a psychologist. So I do let people know that in advance, that it's not medical advice, but it's one-on-one lived experience advice that can help them. And I also... uh, offer seminars and sessions to companies to talk about um, both mental health in terms of postpartum mental illness. And also uh, I do some style and wellness sessions where I talk about how I used um, fashion as a way to get out of my anxiety and depression. And often the same way mental illness has stigma. So does anyone who likes fashion or, or, you know, is into um, dressing up. Sometimes you you have all these judgments placed on you. And I wanted to show the world how fashion doesn't just have to be about vanity, but about a construct that can actually help people with boosting their mood and how that has trickling effects on their performance, their confidence, their relationship, all of that. And it's backed by psych research where I go into companies and talk about this as well. Um, and I've done this also as part of a partnership with uh, my good friend Aldona Style Squared as well. So it's a, a little bit of both. I do some writing as well, freelance work as well there. So it's a bit of a combination of multiple things to try to kind of just help raise awareness in this field as much as I can. All right. Thanks for your time today. And great to talk to you. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise. I appreciate your time as well. Hi, this is Jenny. That was my conversation with Yalda Kazemi author of the new book, Unapologetic Truths, The Realities of Postpartum We Don't Talk About. As Ernest Hemingway always said, write drunk, edit sober, and listen to CJSW. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. My name is Crystal Smith, and I'm a PhD student at the University of Calgary in English Creative Writing, and I'm a poet. And I'm here with my best friend, uh, Melissa Spore-Weiss, who's a PhD student at the University of New Brunswick. And we're going to have a craft talk today, and we're going to talk about uh, creative writing and different approaches to integrating uh, family history into creative writing. Hey, Melissa, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm pretty good. I'm hanging in there. Good. <laughs> so I'm just going to start off, um, you know, and hope it's not too awkward. I'm just going to read your writer bio for everybody. So sure. Melissa, okay. Melissa Spore Weiss is a graduate student at the University of New Brunswick. Her poetry has been published in ARC Poetry Magazine, Riddle Fence, The Malahat Review, CV2, Prairie Fire, The Maynard, Oakland Arts Review, and elsewhere. So welcome, Melissa, to our, our craft talk today. And, and thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. <laughs> okay, great. So I, I always, I'm very interested in craft, you know, because we, we both have been involved in workshopping processes and also um, in TAing uh, and helping to teach. And I've 
I'm always very interested in, in questions of craft and how it is that different writers approach craft. And so I'm wondering, how do you approach craft? Um, that's a really good question that I'm glad you asked me. Um, I find that oftentimes it kind of depends based on what specifically I'm writing about. Um, I found that recently over the past two years, I've been focused more on the family history aspect of things. Um, and it's been interesting um, because in my case, a lot of the family history I've been trying to write about has been family history that has been lost over the years that I'm trying to um, uncover. And because of that, my poetry has kind of shifted a little bit from more of a um, kind of lyrical style to a little bit more experimental where I'm trying to almost like, almost like weasel my way in from different um, approaches just to try to like uncover a family truth that I'm trying to write about. Um, so it really like, it depends on, on the material. I find that, um, like, for example, when I was writing about, um, I don't know if you want to go into specific poems, but I was, I um, sent you a poem um, called, um, I Search You for My MacBook in Fredericton, uh, which is about trying to uncover information about my great grandmother who died during exile to Siberia. And I really didn't have any information about her. So the poem kind of takes on a more experimental feel of just like, the frustration of like looking for information and not being able to find it and just working through my process there. Yeah. I, that poem really struck me with um, where it emulates Google searches, right? And mm -hmm. it's, it's those truncated phrases um, that you would put into a search engine and it creates sort of like a negative space kind of relief of like the thing that you're looking for almost like the google searches form the outline of the the missing relative right mm -hmm. yeah yeah oh with that poem specifically too um the searches kind of get a little bit more absurd as the speaker is getting more like exasperated with not being able to find what she's looking for so like there's a part where it's like there's an autocorrect where the speaker like types in looking for matriarch but it autocorrects to magpie and the speaker is just like okay screw it let's look for weiss family cherry tree which obviously like google is not going to know anything about so it just kind of like shows um just how frustrating it can be um, looking for information when you can't find it. Right. And so when you're dealing with these, as you mentioned, there's the, the, the content of the poem shifts your, your craft ap approach. And so it's interesting that you're working through this kind of layering in your poetry where unknowability and imagination are starting to shape what it what comes out on the, the page itself. Now that we've kind of talked about how you approach craft, I'm wondering what is craft to you? Like what does that mean to you? Because I find that craft can be one of those words that people use in, you know, such different ways like poetics or deconstruction. Like there just seems to be so many iterations and connotations to the word. So I'm curious what craft is in the world of Melissa's poetry and writing. <laughs> 
Um, that's a good question. I find that for me, craft is kind of, um, it's one of those terms that I feel like the meaning is almost a little fluid. Craft can take on a lot of different meanings um, from like structure of the poem um, to almost like content of the poem. Um, I feel like the way that I approach craft is um, it's different for every poem. And it's something that I think like cognitively, I don't think about it a lot as I'm writing. It's something that just comes together um, throughout the writing process of the poem. And some things that you've identified, like the structure and possibly the form of the poem, or even considering possibly like what type of metaphor you might use or how you might progress those metaphors, like through the poem or the imagery, like things like that. Yeah, exactly. I find that it really like goes hand in hand with content um, for me. I, I don't think you can have craft without content. It's it's a fixed package. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, mm -hmm. And kind of leads naturally into uh, one of my questions, which is, is there a particular craft that or craft tools that are connected to vulnerability and family storytelling in poetry, do you think? Um, I think so. I think that um, memory is really important and the lack of memory and trying to uncover a memory. Um, so through that, I just think um, working experimentally um, is the way that I try to approach that and just like digging in at whatever angle I can find. And what are some practical ways do you think that um, people can employ those experimental methods um, if they're trying to tell a story where they know a, a partial part of the truth or some of it? Like, do you read other poets widely or are you looking to certain poets to emulate something that they're doing or do you find experimental material somewhere else like for example the the google search engine are you able to to speak a little bit to that process yeah i find um one of the uh poets that really has been informing my process over the past couple of years is a poet named erin noteboom um she wrote a book called ghost maps which is where she was speaking to a World War II veteran and he was telling her some of his stories and she was turning it into poems. Um, and she was talking in the back of the book where she gave her acknowledgments about how the poems, some of the information was changed, some of it was his, and it allowed the poetry to be um, real enough for the story to be full, told, but fiction enough for me to tell it. Um, and I found that really inspiring as I did my um, research for my poems. And what I specifically tried to do was read a lot of um, biographies or memoirs about people that lived in uh, villages close to where my family lived and just try to like latch on to like an image or an idea or a food or something from there and take that little bit of information that's real enough to let me tell the story and then try to uh, apply stories that I was told about my family or like imagine some of the gaps and make it fiction enough to let me tell the story. Yeah, that's very interesting. So it it's almost 
as if one possible craft tool when um, writing about family stories is about finding an approximation or a sense of the truth and having it stand in for an unknowable truth. Right. Very interesting. <laughs> well, we're coming to the end of our um, our little craft talk here. I just want to finish with a, a final question. And I'm wondering if you've learned or experienced any useful craft lessons or tools from other writers that you'd like to share with us here today before we, we close out. Yeah, um, I found that Erin Nobloom, um, her approach was very useful. Um, I also uh, looked at the poet Louise Glick a lot, um, and she writes in a very, like, almost like an abstract kind of way that really, like, lets you harness memories and bring them onto the page. Um, it's poetry that's, like, abstract, but also, like, really dense in imagery, and I find that the dense imagery allows you to portray like the abstract feeling. So just really like latching on. I find that food um, specifically is something that helps a lot because food is something that we all consume and we all know food. So through talking about food, um, you're able to kind of dig in deeper and and try to like blossom the uh, the emotions that you're trying to bring out. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. So grabbing onto that dense imagery and sensory information through food mm -hmm. to get at yeah. the unknowable. Well, thank you so much, Melissa, for um, meeting with me today to have this little uh, chat. And uh, I look forward to reading more of your work in the future. That was a craft talk between University of Calgary's Crystal Smith and University of New Brunswick's Melissa Spore Weiss about integrating family history into creative writing here on Writer's Block on CJSW 90.9 FM. Call me Ishmael. Or maybe just CJSW. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Hi, I'm Jenny. Today I'm talking with Marcello Desentio about his new book, Driven, where he talks to taxi drivers across Canada about their personal journeys. Desentio is an award-winning travel writer, including the W.O. Mitchell Prize, which is awarded each year to a Calgary author. Hey, um, my name is Marcello Desentio. Uh, I'm an author here in Calgary. And my last book, which is my fifth book, is called Driven, The Secret Lives of Taxi Drivers. And for this book, this book was a bit of a departure for me. Usually I uh, travel to distant places in the world to look for stories and, and find people uh, and experiences to write about. But this time I decided to spend my, focus my attention here in Canada. And I, I was, I started, I was wondering, you know, what stories I'm missing that are around me, especially when I'm in the backseat of a cab. Who are the people that are driving us around? What are their backstories? What are their personal histories? So instead of leaving Canada for once, I stayed here and I traveled around the country and met with drivers and, and, and got to hear about their lives. It was, a, it, was a, it was a wonderful experience. I guess I have um, um, a sense of endearment to taxi drivers because my best friend in uh, elementary school, her dad was a taxi driver. Was so that right? 
So uh, why uh, focus on taxi drivers for this book? Well, you know, Canada here, like we're surrounded by stories, right? Everyone we meet, we can we can probably assume that some, you know, you know, they they've lived they've lived a life, right? They've they, their life has layers. They've gone, they've gone through some kind of ad- adventure, some sort of trauma, some sort of uh, 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 you know experience. We all have those. It doesn't matter if you're a cab driver or the person who pours your coffee or the person who bags your groceries, but. The taxi cab is a really unique environment it's because I can't think of a place where two strangers are in such close physical proximity um, for so long, right? A taxi, a taxi ride could take, you know, a minute or could take an hour and exchange so little with each other, right? Usually we get in the back seat, we, we blurt out our destination and then we, uh, and then we look, stare at our phones. So I, I, I was, I was just wondering what I was missing back there. Tell me about the story of Jess Holti, who's uh, in Calgary. Yeah, so Jess, Jess, one of my favorite drivers that I had a chance to meet. So, so Jess was is this fierce woman, you know, will not suffer fools gladly. But when she was uh, years ago, she was living in India, and uh, she was in an arranged marriage. So, so her husband to be lived in Edmonton, flew to India, they met and got married. And he returned to Edmonton all within like about a week. Like it was this, this quick sort of thing. And by the time uh, uh, Jess was able to go, by the time she was able to arrange her immigration and all her papers and go to Edmonton to meet her, her husband, she, she shows up to his door and he says, I don't want to be married to you anymore. And essentially abandons her on the street in Edmonton. And so Jess is, you know, distraught. And she calls her father back in India and, and tells her what happened. And her father is it works in he's a policeman and he works in the police department. And, and he's talking to her while he's at work, trying to calm her down. Jess, okay, things are gonna be okay. And then his, her father gets a tap on, on his shoulder. And it's another it's another it's a junior officer named Amrit. And Amrit had been eavesdropping on this conversation between Jess and her father. And Amrit says to her father, you know, may I speak with her? And the father's like, why? For what? And he says, I've always been in love with her. And so this begins this beautiful kind of love story. And, and Jess, remember, Jess was fond of Amri too. He's very tall. He's very handsome. I met them both. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're a lovely couple. Um, so eventually, uh, uh, Amri travels to, travels to Canada. Uh, uh, by this time, Jess has moved to Calgary. Um, they meet, they marry, and uh, they start this amazing life where they work the series of, of low-paying jobs, right? You know, the, Tim Hortons, uh, hotel chambermaids, shuttle bus drivers, school bus drivers, pizza delivery, working 18 hours a day. These incredibly, inc- working incredibly hard, harder than I've ever worked, but before they start driving cab. And uh, they built a, a house and a fam and a, and a home and a life for not just themselves, but for their children and for their parents. And so this is three generations that kind of uh, uh, benefited from the hard work of Jess and Amrit. They're a, a remarkable couple. Uh, what were the types of stories you were looking for? Did you go into this with certain expectations and what you found were different? That's a good question. In fact, I think it was the opposite. I was more, I didn't know what kind of stories I was looking for, but I was sure about the stories that I didn't want to write about. And it was two kinds of stories I was not interested in, really. The first was, what I call like taxi noir, right? The idea of you know these kinds of taxi after dark, the sex, drugs, and misbehavior that goes on in the back seats and you know the late night cities, right? I would, I feel that those are kind of cliches. We know those stories; they're part of our pop culture. I didn't really want to write about that sort of thing. I felt we already heard that already. 
And the other kind of story that I was not very interested in was the idea of the cabbie cardiologist, the idea of, of someone who, who earned professional credentials uh, somewhere else. You know, the, uh, they were a doctor in India, they were an engineer in Iran or something like that, came to Canada and found that their credentials were not recognized. So they ended up driving cat. And again, they, those, those people definitely exist, right? Uh, they call them road scholars. I heard them called road scholars. Um, in fact, there's a, there's a joke in, in Quebec where it says, where are you least likely to die of a heart attack? Like in a taxi cab, because chances are your doctor is a, or your driver is a cardiologist. Um, but again, th- th- that's kind of a cliche and that's kind of a story that we've already heard before. It's kind of a story we even assume sometimes. So I was really looking for things that were outside of those two cliches. And I tell you, the drivers delivered. I heard so many stories about, about you know, uh, people enduring war and, and, and incredible trauma, escaping from the Soviet, from, from Soviet era, Czechoslovakia, a Holocaust survivor, a man who fought two wars for Saddam Hussein. Like the, the, the number of, of amazing life stories that I heard were just incredible. And so how did you select the stories for this book? I assume you did a lot of interviews for it. Yes, I did. Uh, so I, I forget, I think the book has about 12, I think I profiled 12 drivers in the book, something like that. I probably interviewed at least twice as many. Um, and so, you know, what I was, I was looking for, I guess, kind of what I said before, I was looking for the type of story that I hadn't heard before. And so I was, I was sitting with these, with these uh, drivers, you know, men and women, but most, mostly men. And, and really kind of went back and got to want to hear about their lives. You know, where did they come from? What was their childhoods like? What did their parents do for work? And then, and, and started, you know, I was far more interested in their lives before they became drivers than their lives as drivers. The industry didn't interest me as much as the, as the life stories. And so I was just looking for things that I hadn't heard before. I spent a lot of time, you know, I didn't want to do interviews in the back from the back seat of a cab. I didn't want to, you know, the meter to be running. I didn't want there to be a sort of, passenger driver relationship so i met most of the drivers in places they felt comfortable sometimes in their homes <laughs> oftentimes in tim hortons but uh, there was a, there was an opportunity for me to spend an hour two hours sometimes even more with these remarkable people what is it about the life of taxi drivers that is appealing for the many who are in the business i mean no one that i spoke to uh, had ever imagined they'd become a taxi driver, right? They they entered the business as, as kind of as as a often as a as a business of last resort. One driver said to me, "No mother ever gives birth to a taxi driver, you know. You know they they end up in the industry." And what a lot of the drivers I spoke to said was that um, driving cab w- w- was was something they they were able to do. They had the skills already. It was it was a job that they can be independent they can set their own hours they can drive as they can work as long or as, or as much or as little as they like for, for the drivers that had family overseas you know being a being a, a cab driver means they could they could stop working for a month or two months to travel like you know what you can't do in a regular job they can go visit their family back in Somalia or India or wherever they're from so there's this there's this level of flexibility that they all that they all enjoyed a lot and I think too, I don't know if they, they, they would they would admit it, but I think the drivers they loved knowing things about the city. They loved that they know they loved that they knew more about Montreal or Calgary, Toronto than 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 the, than the regular citizens do. 
and they were all kind of amateur psychologists as well. It, you know, it was it was pretty quick for a driver to learn how to read a passenger, even from the even as they're approaching from the street. You know, this guy's going to be trouble. This one's going to be okay. You know, they 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 they, they, they could they could, they could size people up pretty easily, and it, and they love having that knowledge. It's, it's it's something that I think makes the drivers really proud. I'm not sure they would admit it like that, but I think they were they quite loved they quite loved knowing what they knew. All right. Um, anything else uh, you would like to say? Okay, just one last thing I'd like to say. One thing that I felt they all had in common, no matter where they came from and what their backstories were, where all the drivers were were like masterminds of their own life they all were they all were geniuses in their own certain way you know whether it was the guy who somehow evaded court martial in iraq by hiding himself under the bureaucracy or the or the or the guy who lost his leg in sierra leone and started a amputee soccer team that he was able to travel around the world and compete for or like jackson amrit who navigated this these series of, of low-paying jobs to build themselves and their family a, a new life in a new country they were all they were all like masterful uh, people. All we, we should admire drivers for their intellects as much as we do for their work ethic. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times on CJSW. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Busoye is a writer and software developer from Calgary, Alberta, which means that by day she writes code, while by night she writes prose. Specifically, she has a passion for creative writing in the genre of magical realism. She believes that you can find the mundane in the fantastical and the fantastical in the mundane elements of human nature. She has been published in Node Magazine, The Telltale Press, and Loft on 8th Press. The following excerpt is a piece from her novel in progress, The Tragic Sign of Theodore Thorne. The Tragic Sign of Theodore Thorne, Chapter 1, Underneath the Tragic Sign. During the first week of his sickness, Theodore felt like a cricket bat was constantly swinging at his temples. During the second week, the jelly of his eyes turned pink and his lips blue. While Aunt Anjali cried tears to fill all of London and burned her St. Joan of Arc candle, Maid Zelda called in the town's best magus because she believed his affliction had supernatural causes. She had a good eye for things like this. Once, as a little girl, she'd been able to spot a hexed hen out of a dozen. She just had a feeling. And then when she cracked its egg open, the yolk poured out black. That same nasty feeling, that feeling that was as dark as tar-stained yolk was upon her now. It cannot be a coincidence, she muttered, as she polished the row of medals the father kept on the mantle. On the eve of his mother's death, the boy falls ill. Perhaps some enemy has given him the evil eye. But whatever it is, the magus will know what to do. The magus in question entered the room with the usual equipment. A cord of golden bells, a dusty purple robe, a silver basin, and a scorpion familiar that made Aunt Anjali shriek. He spoke not at Theodore, who lay as still as a stone on a sickbed, but into the silver basin. His voice echoed through the room on a cold metallic din, punctuated with the rattling of bells. The sickness is indeed a supernatural one, 
The child's head rests underneath a tragic sign. So the magus, while the scorpion familiar, pricked the ball of Theodore's heel to test his blood. Why, thou owest God the death, the creature whispered in the menacing way all magus familiars spoke. Theodore swatted the scorpion away. He hated arachnids and their pessimistic Shakespearean nature. Underneath a tragic sign, Zelda gasped. Could this explain the family's tide of bad luck, the mother's death, the father's unsavory deployment, the unspeakable trouble of the uncle and the university board? And just when Zelda thought the surprises were coming to an end, her own personal test, the arrival of a foreign aunt in the middle of the night, stranded in London because of the war, an aunt who for some reason despised her, who belonged to the Bunyanist sect, that red pinstripe group which held all magic in disdain, that insufferable woman in her laces and high collars, her painted on beauty mark, who carried with her the perpetual scent of lavender, that woman who worst of all was French. While that woman, Aunt Anjali, turned her nose to the presence of the Magus, Zelda clung to his words, underneath a tragic sign. When she murmured those words back to herself, she could hear the distant chirping of bells. After the visit, Zelda went into a superstitious fever. She tied a red string to Theodore's wrist and filled the corners of the room with small deposits of salt. She muttered charms that she learned as a girl, charms that only the very old remembered, charms that only ever helped with sore throats and women's issues, but were chanted desperately now, just in case. She thought briefly about employing a witch as a magical second opinion. A high witch could scribe a tragic sign from under Theodore's brow with nothing but a hand mirror. A hedge witch could tell what lay beneath the murky waters of Theodore's fate with nothing but a deck of cards. But where was the money for hiring either? The Magus visit had cost 20 pounds and the allowance from General Thorne had stopped coming at the beginning of the month. Besides, witches in London, that was a rare sight. So, instead, Sala resorted to her charms, her salt, her village trickery, all of the behaviors that Aunt Anjali, heavily perfumed with the scent of lavender, despised. What a silly, slovenly boy you are, Timothy, Salda exclaimed loudly to Theodore, the old trick of saying opposites and using a false name to confuse the evil eye. She even went as far as bribing Opal, his dead mother's familiar with dried pieces of salami, leaving the dog around the house on the pretense of sniffing out evil. From his spot in the sick room, Theodore could hear the dog's protest. All I can smell are mushrooms, lavender, the earth, and wooded pine. Now unhand me, you mad woman, and give me that salami. Theodore cracked a smile. Good, at least he's behaving like a dog today. On Opal's good days, he seemed content with being a dog. But when the familiar was in a bad mood, he became convinced that he was a bird. Often, he would speak to Theodore of a life he had not led. Ah, remember when I was beautiful? I could hold the sky underneath those fine wings of mine, so cunning, so black, like a sorcerer's beard. Why shouldn't a dog behave like a dog? You were so strange, Theodore, Aunt Anjali reclined, cat-like, on the velvet chase beside the sickbed. Theodore watched her dress sprawl all around like a ballerina's tutu. No reason, Aunt Anjali, he said. Sometimes Theodore forgot that most other people couldn't hear Opal as he did. He couldn't mention a word of such things to Aunt Anjali, who from her bunniness teaching believed that familiars were demons in disguise. Aunt Anjali laughed and readjusted herself in the chase. Theodore could tell she was uncomfortable with the temperature in the sick room, but she never complained. For his sake, the room was kept at a tropical 29 degrees. 
and in response, Anjali carried a white macrame hand fan when she answered. Her motions were somehow both lazy and graceful. As she waved the little fan in front of her, she diffused a sense of lavender into the room. Beads of sweat rested on her forehead, and the normally porcelain face was flushed with red. Her face was serene, but her eyes were filled with agitated ennui. Theodore followed her dagger-like gaze towards Selda. Excusez-moi, Madame Selda, Aunt Angeli finally said, her voice bored and lovely. The beauty mark above her lip, which Selda thought was painted on in imitation of an opera star, danced as she spoke. I don't believe in fabrications of magician doctors. I believe in medicine and science. And you, Theodore, I believe in your strength. Angeli pointed one manicured finger at him, and he shivered under her gaze. Her fingertip like a lightning bolt, like a compass needle towards his chest. Ignore that fat magician Theodore with his purple robes and purple face. He looks like a, what do you call? La prune. A plum, Theodore wheezed, bursting into a fit of coughs. In a quick flash of lace and tulle and lavender, Angeli was by his side. She was like a dove, that one, all white and flashing. Out of her hand for the macrame fan, and suddenly she held a small crystal bottle with a dropper cap shaped like the fleur de lis. It's time for your tincture, mon chérie. She smiled at Theodore as she administered the medicine. This was another ritual, like the one Selda performed, but between them, three times a day, three drops of bitter, earthen smelling liquid directly underneath his tongue. You must not fall victim to the magic nonsense, Theodore. It oddles the mind, she whispered. Theodore hesitated. He looked at her perfect round face, her heat-flushed circles of her cheeks, like a porcelain doll painted rouge, and then nodded. Although he possessed what his mother had once claimed to be a natural attunement to magic, and even had the rare skill of communicating with other people's familiars, he did not discuss these things with Aunt Anjali. She was an unshakable bunionist, a cynic of all things magical, she held the belief system. Besides being unpredictable and dangerous, in her opinion, magic had other flaws. It was too folky, too common. CJSW, no adverbs allowed. You're tuned in to another episode of Writer's Block. Pablo Neruda was a Chilean poet, diplomat, and politician who won the Nobel Peace Prize for Literature in 1971. He wrote in a variety of styles, and his work is celebrated globally to this day. Writer's Block, Vincent Young, reads and reviews Pablo Neruda's poem, If You Forget Me. If You Forget Me by Pablo Neruda I want you to know one thing. You know how this is. If I look at the crystal moon at the vet branch of the slow autumn at my window if I touch near the fire the impalpable ash and the wrinkled body of the lock everything carries me to you as if everything that exists aromas like metals were little boats that sailed toward those isles of yours that wait for me. Well, now, if little by little you stop loving me, I shall stop loving you little by little. If suddenly you forget me, don't look for me, for I shall already 
have forgotten you. If you think it long and mad, the wind of banners that passes through my life, and you decide to leave me at the shore of the heart where I have roots, remember on that day, at that hour, I shall leave my arm, and my roots will set off to seek another land. But if each day, each hour, you feel that you are destined for me with impeccable sweetness, if each day a flower climbs up to your lips to seek me, ah, my love, ah, my own, in me all that fire is repeated, in me nothing is extinguished or forgotten. My love feeds on your love, beloved. And as long as you live, it will be in your arms without leaving mine. Pablo Neruda's poem, you just listen, If You Forget Me, is a poem that speaks directly to the author's lover, warning her what will happen if she falls out of love with the poet. Many believe Neruda wrote this to his lover, the woman who would later become his wife. Neruda was exiled from his native land, Chile, for 13 months after the fall of communism in 1948, and this poem was most likely written while Neruda was in exile in Mexico. Love is a common theme in many of Neruda's poems and critics believe the poem If You Forget Me is not only addressed to his lover but also to his other mistress, his country, not to forget him while he is forced away. Pablo Neruda was awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1971. Pablo died in 1973 of heart failure, but since his death, many speculate, even today, that he was murdered. In the beginning of the poem, Neruda presents a loving and romantic picture for his lover, reminding her of how much he loves her. However, towards the middle of the poem, his tone changes, warning her if she stops loving him, he will also cease to love her. The tone in the last stanza of the poem reverts back to the positive romantic tone in the first section of the poem. And the speaker tells his lover that if she does not forget him, if she keeps on loving him, he will forever love her in return. The poem highlights how intense yet fickle a love between a man and woman can be. If You Forget Me is a poem comprised of six stanzas of varying length. The poem is written in free verse, as the lines are unrhymed. Something interesting to note is the fact that in the first stanza, which is only one line, reading, I want you to know one thing, seems to be a continuation of the title. Reading the poem 
like this lends a threatening tone to the work. The tone swiftly changes in the second stanza where Neruda explains the depth of his love directly to his mistress, writing in the first line, You know how this is. Neruda's diction is quite beautiful in this stanza, referring to the crystal moon and the red branch. He conjures up his senses of sight and touch, telling his lover that whatever he sees or touches will inevitably carry him back to her. While the first half of the poem is incredibly romantic and flattering, the third and fourth stanzas paint a very different picture and they serve as a warning to the mistress. The third stanza stands on its own, cautioning the lover that if she stops loving him, he will do the same in return. It also begins the first in a string of ultimatums Naruda offers to the lover. The fourth stanza continues that thought as the speaker tells his lover that if he is forgotten, she will be forgotten too. In order to emphasize this even more, Naruda only includes that one thought into the stanza. It is interesting to note Naruda's diction in that last line, I shall already have forgotten you. He tells his lover that if she suddenly forgets him, he wants her to know that he was the one who forgot first. It has already been done. It seems important to him that she knows that it is she who was forgotten first. He continues his warning in the fifth stanza, again telling his lover that should she decide to leave me at the shore, he will on that day at the hour seek another land. In this stanza, Neruda uses an extended metaphor of a shore and its land to warn his lover of the consequences of her actions. The speaker views his lover as his home. But should she decide to leave him, he will have no problem at all seeking another woman to fill her place. In the sixth and final stanza of If You Forget Me, however, Naruda changes his tone once again, this time returning to the romantic and passionate tone of the first stanza. The first line of the last stanza is compromise of a single word, but this gives the reader the impression that all has been occurring in the previous stanzas has been setting the stage for this final one. It is as if the speaker is telling his lover, if you do anything of these things, I will do them back to you. But if you do not, this will happen instead. For the remaining of the lines of the first stanza reveal what will happen if the lover does not forget him. If instead she feels that you are destined for me, the feeling will be returned. A reading and reflection of If You Forget Me by Pablo Neruda on CJSW Writer's Blog.
better than finding a great book at a bargain is being introduced to a new favorite author or story for free. I can still remember the excitement I felt when I found my first Little Free Library. Their appeal is about more than just getting something for free. It's about the joy of discovery and a sense of community that these little libraries bring. Since finding my first Little Free Library, I have traveled around the city in search of more. Some of them have made a lasting impression on me, like the bright red library with a giant Snoopy sleeping on top, or the one built as a miniature of the house it sits in front of. I have seen so many accompanied by a well-maintained sitting area, like a cute bench or chair, inviting passers-by to take a minute out of their day to relax, maybe with a passage or two from a pre-loved book. In my opinion, these little libraries are a reflection of some of the best qualities humanity has to offer. Hospitality, intellectual curiosity, and creativity. I have found so many great books in Little Free Libraries. My favorite so far is one called Galileo's Daughter, about the surviving letters between Galileo Galilei and his eldest daughter. But for this segment, I wanted to look at a completely new old book. I visited a couple of nearby libraries until I found the perfect one. But first, I want to share with you everything I could find about these Little Free Libraries. The first Little Free Library was built in Wisconsin in 2009, without any idea of the phenomenon it would become. It was created by Todd Bowl as a tribute to his book-loving school teacher mother. He built a few more after that for family and friends because they loved it so much. It wasn't until friend and future co-founder Rick Brooks pointed out its larger scale potential that it took on a life of its own and got its name. Now there are over 100,000 registered little free libraries in 108 countries around the world. In an interview with The Little Observationist, Rick Brooks tells a fascinating story, his favorite, about the Little Free Library. One night, he got a call from a Chinese reporter who had learned about the Little Free Libraries and was enchanted by them. She wanted to do a story about the libraries, but wasn't able to give him her name or phone number, but promised to be in touch soon. Two months passed until he heard from her again. She had left a message saying that she had written the story, but her supervisor wouldn't let her publish it. Brooks was amazed how, in his words, a free library where ordinary people could share information and opinions through literature that they valued was too frightening for Chinese government censors. Little free libraries have taken on a life of their own. They've often been used as memorials or as dedicated inclusive spaces for disabled, LGBTQ, and BIPOC people. People have also completely adapted the concept of a little free library into little free art galleries or even as a local food cupboard for people in need. It is the spirit of community that launched the Little Free Library that has carried through all of these different passions and purposes. But now onto my most recent library find. This month's book is both practical and quirky. It's the woodworker Charles R. Self's 1995 book, Super Simple Birdhouses You Can Make. In his introduction, he explains how the choices made for materials to build the birdhouses have life or death consequences. In his home state of Virginia, he shares that many baby birds freeze to death, a problem he blames in part on the popular use of metal birdhouse roofs, something that other books on the topic at the time regularly call for. There's so many sweet designs in the book, one built like a little hotel, another with little wooden thatched windows and a cute little log cabin design. If you'd like to build your own birdhouse, check out the Edmonton and Area Land Trust. They'll give you all the information and tutorials you need to get started. 
If you're up for a day trip to Edmonton, you can even purchase a kit from them, with all proceeds going to support local conservation efforts. But keep in mind the word of Charles R. Self, not all birds will use birdhouses. If you're wanting to host blue jays or cardinals, you'll likely be disappointed. But chickadees, sparrows, and even woodpeckers all use them. I hope this segment has inspired you to check out your local Little Free Libraries and maybe build one or a birdhouse of your own. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to check in next month as I go in search of another new old book. You've been listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW 90.9 FM.